I remember coming in here, and we'll be in Philippians 1 tonight, if you'd like to make your way there. I think it was 1990 or 1991, I was a member of Temple Baptist Church, and we had the youth disciple now. And I'd never been in here before the church, I wasn't very old, and I thought, this is a very unique and beautiful church. Uh, I wanted to be in here. And then when we joined 22, three years ago, yesterday, um, I felt the same way. I just couldn't get enough of being in here. And I think maybe after a six-month sabbatical recently, coming back in here, you know, having the privilege to stand up here, not really sure I would again, and see the dove descend, see the cross where the morning light hits it there when I come in here to get my game face on before Sunday school, the evening tends to hit it there. The themed stained glass. What appeals to you most in here? At the moment, what appeals to me most is a junior high boy sitting on the front row waiting on God's word. Just like he did every day in seventh grade Bible class. The kind of thing that keeps a teacher going when they're convinced that they've only been talking to themselves for the last month. And I suspect... And I know it's true for parents and teachers, and I think it might be true of God that very few things appeal to him more than when we want what he's offering. So, here's what he's offering. Let's start, if I understand it right, you've done the first 11 verses, so let's just do 12 through the end of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, or brothers and sisters... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only then every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Because to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted unto you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that these words, my words, would be your words. That you would increase and that we would decrease, that we all might increase in you, in Christ's name. Amen. I think, and this is why I don't read my emails most of the time, that I was supposed to do verse 12 through, or maybe 18 through the end. I didn't realize, I guess, until it was too late. I, I think maybe Knox mentioned it, and I didn't hear him. I, I didn't have to preach out of Philippians. And most of you know that I'm an Old Testament junkie and in much more home there. In fact, epistles are right above minor prophets at where I like to go. However, before I was reformed, and for those reasons, being stuck in the New Testament hopelessly for years and years and years, the place that I was stuck more often than any outside the Gospels was Philippians. And there are worse places to be stuck. Um, here's what I mean by that. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he keeps going. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain, there's that word again, Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means necessary, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that and make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Or rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. With thanksgiving and requests, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I've learned in whatever situation, I am to be content I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I defy you to find a chapter or a book of the Bible that's more quotable than that. And before you say Psalms, there's 150 of those and about as many authors. Philippians ain't set to music. And only the best authors can write prose that sounds like poetry. So, I don't mind being stuck in Philippians. Those of you know, uh, if you've known me for five minutes, you know that in lieu of a seminary education, my number one fail-safe for trying to approach a passage or a book or, you know, is count the terms and phrases that just keep popping up over and over and over again. Especially when they keep naming these things when they could be using pronouns. I mean, whatever somebody keeps coming back to, well, that's what's on their mind. And they're not just engaging in conversation. They're not spitballing. They're sitting down writing. There's a reason you would do anything, clean your room, exercise, work out, run five miles before you sit down and write that paper. Because writing's hard. Even for people who are good, it's hard. This is divinely inspired. These words are living and life-giving. And one of those words that he seems to like in this book is joy or rejoice. By my count, and I try to use a literal translation because I can read Greek and I barely handle English. But I counted rejoice or rejoice, and I did it twice, about 12 times. According to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, altogether, the different versions of joy, joyous, joyful, rejoice, appear over 400 times in Scripture. If God says something once, is it important? If he says it 400 times... The Baker's Dictionary of Theology says in the Old Testament, 10 different terms express joy. No language has as many words for joy and rejoicing as Hebrew. Maybe that's why God picked it. Even God rejoices, as you discover in Psalm 104, about his creation. Or in Luke 15, in the lost parables, you discover that angels rejoice over our repentance. It's like a cheerleading squad. They seem to be more excited about our victories than we tend to a lot of the times. So I think all of those things make it imperative that we define this term as accurately as possible. I'm the worldview teacher. I don't want to hear words coming out of your mouth, but you don't know what they mean. And if I ask you what righteousness is, don't say, it's kind of like holiness. And I ask you what holiness means, and you say, it's kind of like righteousness. We don't need another generation of people to define words that they don't know what they mean with other words they don't know what they mean. If God said joy 400 times, what's it mean? 
Bible dictionary again. It's a state of delight and well-being. Sounds like there's a healthy quality to it. That results from knowing and serving God. The fact that it results from knowing and serving God explains why Jesus could honestly say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. It would also go a long way towards explaining how a guy could be stuck in Roman prison right into a church he planted with Lydia and other people in Philippi where he was in prison and just keep going on about rejoicing. Particularly in chapter 3 where he talks about I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenward call of God heavenward. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. They seem to be on the same page with this joy thing. It goes on to state two things about joy. Joy is the fruit of a right relation to God. The word we have for right relation to God is righteousness, a word that he uses more than once. In this same book, it's not a coincidence. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. And then Paul addresses that again in chapter 3. But here's what I would offer you. Apparently, it is impossible to be in right relation with God and have an absence of joy. I don't mean every now and then, okay? I mean, in the long term. I mean, obviously every day ain't going to be zippity-doo-dah with Mr. Bluebird on your shoulder. But over the long run, those who can't rejoice are in wrong relation to God. I didn't say they weren't saved. There are plenty of people who have dysfunctional relationships with their parents or their children. They're still their children. But wouldn't the experience be different if you both understood what was expected? Right relation. Here's another thing that is said. It is not something people can create on their own efforts. It's closely related to the work of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament regards joy as essentially a divine bestowal. It is the proper response of the soul to the gospel. Closely related to the work of the Holy Spirit as a gift of God, joy is unknown to the world. Remember that at Christmas when you sing exactly the opposite. And hear the next words. It's not just joy to the world. That joy is yours only if the Lord is yours. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Evidently, joy is the inevitable outcome of biblical righteousness alone.
It isn't a byproduct of a positive attitude. It isn't the spiritual pep talk you give yourself that lasts about as long as your coffee lasts. It isn't grinning and bearing it. It isn't putting on your I was born in the South happy face. Because, again, it is not something you can create with your own efforts, but the fruit of right relation to God. Biblically speaking, no one outside of a saving relationship through Jesus Christ can have true joy. They have to settle for a substitute. Thrills. Fun. Entertainment. Excitement. Or, if you have the same little rectangle in your pocket I have, endless distractions. Spurgeon begins the fourth chapter of his book, The Joy of the Lord, with a couple of references to Nehemiah. One from chapter 8 and one from chapter 12. Here's chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Feel weak? I rarely feel weak and joyous at the same time. Maybe there's a reason for that. And then later in chapter 12, when all the Israelites are gathered together and the singers are saying loudly, you get this. Also, that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even far off. I wonder how much time and effort committees at churches spend on trying to attract people to their church. What kind of plan and scheme they have. I wonder how necessary that would be if the joy of this church was heard far off. God made them rejoice. That doesn't work in my house. We're going to go to church and we're going to like it. Sit down and be quiet. You know, that, I don't know how that works with God, but he does something in their life, like bringing them out of captivity, bringing them home, keeping his promises and gives them that home and makes them realize you hear the reading of the word. They're convicted in their hearts. They repent. They're crying. And then God, now you're in right relation to God. And now God makes you rejoice. It's really not even optional. So, if it's not optional, then candidly, why does joy so often elude us? Now, y'all, us. Okay, well, in an effort to nail it down, there's just a few key words here in chapter one that uh, I'd like to pull out. One of them is the word worthy. If you're in my Sunday school class, you're tired of hearing this. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What about honoring? What about consistent with? He used the word worthy. And that being a word that pops up a lot in 1 Samuel, which we're doing in Sunday school, 
you start to notice, if you get the privilege of going through it as often as I do with seventh graders, there's a lot of value vocabulary, for lack of a better term, in that book. Worthless. Worthless men. Hophni and Phineas were worthless. Lightly esteemed, despised. Esau despised his birthright. You know, these worthless people have the same image of God stamped upon them that I do. So how in the world does God's divinely inspired word arrive at their value being worthless? I mean, that's about as harsh. That's, that's one stroke away from probably Jezebel. In fact, the two worthless men, as you get on into the book of Kings, were the ones that preferred Jezebel's favor to the life of one of the few honorable people left in Jezreel with Naboth. It said twice in there, maybe even three times, two worthless men lied about Naboth cursing God and the king when he's in this strict minority of people who wouldn't curse God and the king. And they took him out and stoned him. I believe later, if you keep reading, they might have stoned his family too. Also, somebody could have a vegetable garden. They made their choice. They chose a vegetable garden and the wishes of a woman who was proud and brazen about riding her broom around on the northern kingdom for years. They thought her favor had more worth than that of the Naboths of the world. And let's contrast that with worthy my favorite place with worthy is in Revelation 5. When you see God sitting on the throne in chapter 4 and it uses on the throne like 12 times and then it transitions in 5 and the he who is seated on the throne has a scroll in his hand. Sealed with seven scrolls. Seven seals. No one was found worthy to open it. You read that and you think, this is God. But it didn't say able. It said worthy. And then, as John, who got really attached to this scroll and starts weeping for reasons he can't explain, I guess, because no one's found worthy to open it. I don't think Sons of Thunder weep all that often. Someone comes to him and says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, and he's worthy. And you turn and look, expecting to see Aslan, and you see not a lion, you see a lamb, which is a snack for a lion, looking like it's been preyed upon. And then the angels start praising God. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and on and on and on. For you ransomed people for God by your blood. They're praising God for your salvation, not theirs. They don't need it. Worthy are you. Why? Because when you had a choice... Between a worthless world and paradise, you made an unthinkable choice. You came down here being misunderstood by most people that ever met you. Even your disciples for quite a while, at least underestimated, let's say that. And that's before you even get into the betrayal and the spit on and the scourged and the mocked and mocked and the spit on and the skirts and the, you know, on and on. And then 
crucifixion, which is excruciating. I know it's excruciating because the word excruciating comes from the Latin excursus, meaning out of the cross. It is excruciating. To say the cross is excruciating is to say the cross is the cross. That's what you chose. Why? He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So, what determines your worth? Well, apparently your value is determined by what you value. What do you want? More than anything else in the world, what or who do you want? You can say it's this thing over here or your family or Jesus. We've learned to lame a lot of things in life, Jesus. But by the choices you make repeatedly, by what you spend your time doing, that's what you want. Let your life, let your manner of life be worthy. Make the same conscious commitment to Christ daily and weekly and monthly and yearly that Christ made to you every day that he carried his cross, denied himself. Not my will, but thine. You ain't gonna find joy. And all the things the world has to offer. It's not there. There's a lot of pseudo joy. A lot of things that promise to give it to you. But the world's big on over promising and under delivering. What about the word gain? You see it for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. You see it again in 3.7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost. You see, let me listen to that one again. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Do you see how there's a transaction in his mind that happened on the Damascus Road? I'll show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Apparently he heard that. He was blind as a bat, but he heard that. Go look at a, I don't think it's an exhaustive list of his sufferings. It's an exhausting list of his sufferings, like 2 Corinthians 10 or 11. I think it's chapter 11, where he's in danger from this and danger from that. And he's ranger danger, and then it's a shipwreck three times, and on and on and on. Joy? Rejoice? Singing hymns in the middle of the night, the jail bursts open. I'd see that as a surefire thing that God did, and, and it's a jail run. Not him. He stayed there for the salvation of the jailer. Figured there was a reason he had been beaten without a trial and put in jail. And it wasn't so he could sue them. He saw it. It's just one more part of the mission. And when you have struggles... Are they part of the road you walk, or are they just obstacles? And who put those there? Is your instinct a detour, like me? Or do you walk through them? Those good works God has prepared beforehand for us to walk through. I think you'll see this choice, this, this contrast of gain and loss. I think you'll see it all the way through the Bible. As you clearly tell by the way, he, he thinks he struck oil on the Damascus Road. 
Uh, he, he can't see it any other way. You know who else knew that? Zacchaeus. Rich young ruler didn't seem to get it. He put on a good show. He kneeled. Called him good teacher. Talking about heaven. Man, how do you let that guy get away? Jesus drew a line in the sand. Okay. Well, one thing you like. You know his ears parked up. I can do one thing. Sell everything you got and give the money to the poor, which means you'll be one of them now. And come, follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. That's what you said you wanted. We smell like fish, but he just didn't want it that bad. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, he said, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, which you know he had, come on. I'll give it back fourfold. How much did Jesus tell him to give away? None. That's how you know it's the real thing. Zacchaeus did without having to be told what the rich young ruler wouldn't do when God spelled it out for him in the chapter right before in Luke. Joy just seems to have that effect on you. When it's the real thing. Jesus had three ways of teaching to my observation. Sermons, parables, real life. The sermon version of that is you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God in money. The parable version of that is this. A man was in search of fine pearls. And upon finding one of great value, he sold all he had and bought that pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field and a man was digging. And he found it. And upon finding it, he went and sold all he had to own that field. This is worth more than everything else I've got put together. And I'm not missing this chance. Sadly, when the great pearl's dressed like a carpenter, sometimes you don't see him. When he makes himself known, when he ambushes you, it would be Damascus Road, it would be in the emergency room. What do you find to be more beautiful? You see the transaction? I consider all things lost in view of the surpassing. That's not passing. You can pass somebody and still be in second place. This is the surpassing, well, I was passing everybody, I think, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You don't have to convince him. He was sold. You can stop selling. So, how do we access it? I mean, we all know we want it, but how do you get it? Okay, so I would say to that, whenever a divinely inspired author pulls back the curtain on their frame of mind, on their mentality, and they don't always, but when you get to look into the mind of a genius, or in this case, a divinely inspired, sold out, missionary slash preacher slash prisoner slash 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 you should sit up and take notice 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, normally I want you looking, 99% of the time I want you looking at God's word, not at me. Because I ain't much to look at. I got a face made for radio, as they say. But I'd like you to see the trajectory of the language here at least in English. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or gripped, but made himself nothing. He let go. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Surely he's through, but he's not. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. It's a sharp reversal right there. When you hit rock bottom, not just death, even death on a cross. The mentality there is you're all in. And you're generally all in for someone else. He was all in for you. He could have walked out that night in that sham of a trial, scot-free, and kept his mouth shut. It was a joke. It wasn't funny, but it was a joke. Where do you find witnesses at two in the morning? Incredible witnesses wandering the streets of a big city. It was a joke. He could have kept his mouth shut and left. But when they asked him who he was, he told them. His identity was that important to him. Is it that important to you? It better be when you consider all you got riding on it. All in. Downward, downward, downward. It's easy to say I'll give up everything for Christ, but it usually doesn't come in the form of all at once. God starts picking away and stripping away the things that you'd prefer to keep. But think about what Christ would have preferred to keep. And instead, for the kingdom, for you, you let go of it. Downward, downward, downward. The trajectory of his life is a lot like my favorite story in the Bible, the story of Joseph. You're the favorite son, and then you get betrayed, and then you're a slave. And you're a favorite slave for a while, but then you're a prisoner. And you're the favorite prisoner for a while, and then you're a forgotten prisoner. And that just goes on for years. And then all at once, you're the second most powerful person in the world. I think the difference there is Joseph had to figure that out. And when he did, this is what he said. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on this earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Love that story. But he ain't Jesus. Jesus went into that same kind of a deal with his eyes wide open. Let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not Pharaoh this time, God. It's always a quality sermon when you can work in a Spurgeon quote. So we'll close with that. Does that man love his Lord who would be willing to see Jesus wearing a crown of thorns while for himself he craves a chaplet of laurel, a wreath of honor? Shall Jesus ascend to his throne by the cross and do we expect to be carried there on the shoulders of applauding crowds? Be not so vain in your imagination. Count you the cost. And if you are not willing to bear Christ's cross, go back to your farm and to your merchandise and make the most of them. Only let me whisper this in your ear. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. Take a look at the people on your internet homepage. Have you ever left church? I bet you have. Have you ever left church and you saw one of these lives of the rich and famous and all the drama with it and you thought, I wouldn't trade what I've got in my middle class life for five minutes of that. Because I've got Christ. And Christ has me. And he's not going to let me go. He has way more invested in my salvation than I do. And he intends to collect. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your joy would be our joy and not just at Christmas. Lord, I pray that the joy of this place would abound and be heard far off. Husbands, wives, childrens, make us rejoice, Lord. If we're weary and troubled, give us the grace to turn our eyes on you and see your beautiful face, the one Jacob saw when he was wrestling with you. In Christ's name, amen.